imagine that you're very competent. Should I have five other people who are also at the 90th percentile on that dimension? Or should I get five other mediocre people on various other dimensions? And there's all this incredible evidence that it's not surrounding yourself with the best, it's surrounding yourself with the most different that leads to the best outcomes. Adam, thank you for uh, coming to be part of the Consultant and the Coach podcast. Congratulations on your brand new book that is coming out in May, Anatomy of a Breakthrough. Uh, so you're a professor of marketing at the Stansky Teaching Excellence Faculty at New York University's Stern School of Business. And uh, you're also a graduate of Princeton University, got a doctorate in psychology, and you were also named Poets and Quants 40 Best Professors Under 40 in 2017, and a New York Times bestselling author of two books, Drunk Tank, Pink, and Irresistible. So what did I leave out? I don't think you left out too much. I think that's a pretty solid introduction. I'll take it. It's all... <laughs> It's all true. So that's that's a good place to begin. There you go. Awesome. Awesome. Well, first, like I said, first, congratulations on finishing this book. It's always a you know huge celebration to finish a book and not only one, this is your third book. So what caused you to want to write the book, uh, Anatomy of a Breakthrough? Yeah, it is my third book. It's funny. I think the, the, the DNA of all these books goes back a long way and this one's no exception. So this one, I, I think I really started thinking about it probably about 20 years ago, I was doing some research on how people across the world think about change and whether they're good at anticipating when changes are coming. And so one of the things I did was I went all around the world to a whole lot of different countries and I asked people, imagine that uh, you know a stock in the financial markets has been doing really well, what's going to happen tomorrow? And I found some really interesting cultural differences. I found that in, in the East, so in, in East Asia in particular, in Japan, Korea, and China, People think that things are going to change a lot. They're anticipating change. They're ready for change and they're preparing for change. But in, in the US, in the West, in the US, I found this in Britain. I found this in Australia. I found this in New Zealand. People don't anticipate change. They anticipate that things are just going to keep going the way they've been going. And the, the problem with that is that that's A, inaccurate. Things change all the time. And B, when they do change, you're not really prepared for that change. And so I became very curious about this idea that when change happens, and since it happens a lot, we have to deal with it a lot, we may not be all that well prepared for it. And so this book is really a sort of blueprint that I've been thinking about and sort of sitting on for the last 20 years for how we cope with these moments when we get stuck, usually in the face of something that's shifted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, almost ironically, something changes, therefore we can't, right? Because we're not prepared, right? That's the, yeah, I love it. I think this, this book, I mean, for the consulting work I do, this, this book is spot on for so many of the leaders I work with and the companies, I mean, and you could go down the list of case studies, of course. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned a lot of great researchers, great examples, great stories in the book. I really appreciated that. I felt when I first saw the book, I thought, oh my goodness, it's really thick in terms of the dense, density of the content. Like, I'm never going to get through this, but then it read really smoothly. So that's great. Um, who would you say were some of the, like the key influencers for you of like the long list of researchers and other things that went into the book? What were some of those kind of key folks who mentored or brought you along either directly or maybe just through their writing and research that, that really contributed to this work? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think they are very inspiring. And so there are some people who say everything's a work in progress. And so I will never assume that where I am right now is where I will always be. And as a result of that, they're constantly experimenting. They, they don't assume that anything is as good as it can be. And so they keep pushing against whatever boundaries there are. 
And that makes them incredibly nimble in the face of not just change, but in, in the face of these sticking points that arise. Um, there are some great examples of this. One of my favorites was um, this, uh, this Olympian I spoke to. He was a, a backstroker for the United States. He swam the backstroke in the 1988 and 1992 Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. And the thing that fascinated me about him was um, physically he was not as tall or as broad-shouldered or as, as large or as dominant as some of the other competitors but he was incredibly intelligent. He was dogged. So he had all the right sort of mental attributes. Uh, but but what he did was from a very young age, he experimented constantly. He assumed that the way that the rest of the world was doing the backstroke was not optimal, or at least was open to the idea that there might be a better way. And one of the things he discovered, he actually went to Harvard. So he was a cerebral guy, a very smart guy. One of the things he and his coach discovered was that people, when they're swimming fully underwater, fully immersed, are much faster than when they're half breaking the surface of the water. So he developed a technique that came, his name is Dave Burkhoff. It became known as the Burkhoff Blastoff. It was the way he pushed off a wall that kept him underwater for longer than the other swimmers. And he ended up breaking the world record. Mm -hmm. And there's a very famous Australian swimming coach named Laurie Lawrence, who I remember as a kid growing up listening to this guy, very colorful character. And Lawrence, when he saw who had broken the world record, couldn't believe that this guy who was like half a foot shorter than all the other swimmers in the pool had triumphed. And um, and I found that totally fascinating, the idea that with the right approach, with this sort of experimental mindset, you can always push against whatever limitations there may be. And, and so he was he was a particularly inspiring person. And as someone who likes sport a lot, I'm also not a very tall guy, but I I, I think I'm pretty dogged as well. I liked the idea that he had, he had found a way and I really enjoyed his story. Yeah, no, that, well, and you'll find Eric and I are big sports fans, runners. Eric's an accomplished runner. I pretend to be. Uh, and we just, uh, I loved all the sports analogies. It was great. I mean, in terms of how the crossover between business and, and uh, sports is, uh, is huge. So, um, well, I, I like that analogy you you said about the swimmer as well too i was just thinking recently of dick fosbury who just passed away but he did the same thing in the high jump where people used to go over from the front side he's like no let's flip this thing over and flipped it over set a couple world records and literally changed everything and i've noticed frequently there's so many great people you can learn from athletic endeavors that move over to business and vice versa it's it's we, we could come up with hundreds of examples so i absolutely love that so um as you were writing this book what were some of the things that just surprised you i know you've been doing research for decades but what just like hey something surprised you you did not expect to come when you were doing research for this book yeah there are a few things i'll pick on one of them that, that i still think about a lot actually and that's um, that I think in business, in, in almost every context, we strive for originality, for true, genuine, radical originality. We're always looking for something different. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. It's true for creative pursuits. It's true for artists. It's true for musicians, for writers. And one of the things I discovered that was really interesting when I was doing the research for this was that trying to be truly original is actually paralyzing. It's very difficult to do. And actually, when you look at people who others consider to be truly original, they weren't striving for that. Um, and so there are some examples in the book. I talk, for example, about Bob Dylan, who when other singers are asked, who's the most original singer of the 20th century? A lot of them say Bob Dylan. They, they find a lot of, of his approach to music was seen as something that was genuine and different from, from what other people were doing. Uh, there, there are examples of artists 
as well who people pointed to a lot of people said van gogh was was a completely different artist from anyone who came before him in the the late 19th century and there are a lot of examples of people who I held up as these truly radical original examples or exemplars of whatever they were doing. But when you ask them, that's not at all the way they perceive it. And actually, if you dig deeply, a lot of Bob Dylan's techniques were borrowed from other people in other adjacent areas of music. And if you look at Van Gogh, he was constantly borrowing from 10 other artists who were around at the same period who maybe didn't rise to the same level of fame eventually that he did. But, but, what you see is that the people who do really well, what they're doing is not so much trying to be truly original, even if that's what they end up being perceived as, but they are evolving. They're taking something that works really well and they're either recombining two, two existing elements into something new, or they're just tweaking things in just the right way. And there, there are some examples in the book from business, from art, from music of, of this kind of approach to, to evolving rather than trying to create revolutions, which are very hard to do. And if you think about it, if you're trying to get unstuck, if the only way you feel you have succeeded is to be truly original, that bar is tremendously high. And so a lot of the time, it's knowing the right kind of bar to use to evaluate your work. Um, there's one of the examples that I really loved was this uh, cell phone company where instead of trying to make the newest, flashiest cell phone, um, this this group of, of uh, entrepreneurs led by a woman named Arlene Harris basically said, well, you know, the cell phone market is heavily trafficked. There are a lot of people buying cell phones. There are a lot of young people making cell phones for other young people. But there's a huge market of people, older adults, who don't love the way cell phones work today. This was about 15 years ago. They find them difficult to use. The buttons are hard to press. Why don't we take old cell phones, this market that hasn't really been tapped, and, and figure out a way to really do what they want and, and to find a way to recombine these existing elements? And she created a billion dollar company. It was bought by Best Buy. And uh, it's one of those examples of, of finding just the right evolution from where we are in the market today. Um, and so that was, that was, I think, one thing that I really found surprising and, and quite inspiring. Yeah, that, that's a great, in fact, that leads right into the first question I was going to ask like from my like book question. So that's good timing. A little bit about us, just we didn't have a chance to do that. Just so you know, kind of our lens, you may have had a chance to see a little bit about us. But so Eric and I are good friends. We've been uh, working in business for over 40 years. He's an executive coach. I'm the strategy consultant. We uh, we started this because we're book nerds and love to talk about you know hard concepts in business and figure out how to help our clients. And so that's why we do this. And we're really happy to have you on here with us. And um, we certainly talk a lot about you know our Christian faith also informs us. And there's a big group of folks out there trying to figure out that piece too. And um, certainly not a requirement for anyone to be on the show or to to come along for these uh, these great uh, podcasts. But uh, that's just kind of who we are. Um, and I think one of the problems we tend to see, which is why your book was so appealing, was, uh, you know, there's a lot of companies and leaders who I see get stuck, right? And so that's when I mm -hmm. saw your book, I said, oh my gosh, we got to have Adam on, and we got to read this book and learn more about this, because I think I run into this a lot. Um, and so with that, you know, going back to the novelty concept, which you mentioned, um, I, I like that was like my first topic I wanted to address. So good. It's like we compared notes. Um all the examples were great. I think the question I was wondering about, maybe you could talk a little bit more was, um, you know, I find it hard to figure out when that novelty threshold is reached, right? Like, mm -hmm. how do you like it? I mean, other than experimentation, which maybe that's the answer, but how, how does someone think about, or how do they know, okay, I've tried these things and I'm actually, I'm actually finally finding something that's novel like that. Even that is, well, not the highest bar in terms of originality. Like you said, it's also a very, 
find like the actual yeah. finding of that can be tough. Well, how, how do you, how would you help a business leader think through like when they've found something that's truly novel, right? When they've actually gotten it. Yeah, I see. I, I think the problem with novelty as a yardstick, as a, a tool to measure whether an idea is a good one is that it starts too early. What you really have to do is work backwards from, from the end and to work mm. out what matters to you. So for me in business, I teach thousands and thousands of MBA students and um, they all want to be successful. A lot of them want to be successful in business. And the question is, at the end, when you look back on this business, this venture, whatever it is that you're trying to do that requires some degree of novelty, how will you know if you've succeeded? And that's what Arlene Harris did with her phone. She said, what I want to do is I want to attract, say, 5% of the over 65 market, mm -hmm. older adults who are looking for phones, and then I'll know I've succeeded. And the nice thing about doing that is it's very concrete. It's objective. It gives you something to strive for. You might need to tweak it over time. Maybe 5% isn't the right number for Arlene Harris in the end. But what it does is it liberates you from the idea that the product you're making has to be a certain way. Because honestly, being original is really hard to do. I talk in the book about how we can move in that direction, how we can make products that are more original and come up with ideas that are more original. But I think it's better to think about what matters to you at the end of the day, objectively, what's the, the measure that matters. And so maybe it's a number of sales, maybe it's a, a profit number, maybe for this venture to be successful, my return on investment needs to be X. It really sort of depends on, on what matters to you, what sort of scale you're looking for, how many people you're trying to support with that business. Is this a five-year plan, a 10-year plan? Is it a, just a sort of side hustle? All of that's going to matter a lot. And I, I think that will determine whether you've, you've cleared whatever bar you're setting, because then clearing the bar is really tethered to some end goal, some outcome. And I right. think that's the best way to think of in business of any objective is we're at A, B, C, what does Z look like? You know, that's right. really what matters. Well, and I like that because so many times with entrepreneurs I've worked with, um, there's there's certainly a lot of emphasis around like what's the pain point you're going to solve and what's the market size, right? So yeah. there's, the, there's the pain point, there's the TAM, total addressable market, but you're also talking about like what's your actual outcome that you're mm -hmm. shooting for. So I, I like that addition to that thinking. I think that makes a lot of sense and I'll take that. That's good. That's a good nugget. Along the same line as an entrepreneur, I, I did not know this until I read your book that you said the average age, and I'm going to use air quotes, of a successful entrepreneur is 42. And in in this age, it's almost like the younger one is when they start this, the better. Hey, they started this at Harvard or Princeton in their college days. I've got 10 months to go. Yeah. And, and I'm just like, oh, crumb, I'm 46 years old. Granted, I have a few businesses, but at the same time, now tell me about the age of successful entrepreneurs. Yeah, this was really interesting to me. I'm actually 42, so I'm bang on that age right now. So I, I better do something magical this year. But well, um, hey, this book is it. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. So I'll take it. I'll run with that. But yeah, I, I found that really interesting. You know, we fetishize these very young entrepreneurs because they're interesting stories, and I think a lot of the biggest businesses now happen to be tech businesses that happen to have been started by very young people. That's true for a lot of these tech companies that they were started by people in their 20s. Some of them dropped out of school to start them. And so as a result, we're focusing on 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds. And that's vanishingly rare. That's not how most successful businesses work. And there are very good reasons for that because over the years you develop skills, competencies, your brain matures. Your brain isn't, isn't even fully mature until you're in your late 20s, early 30s. That's That's how the human brain develops. So you're working with a sort of not fully formed set of cognitive faculties until you're older, your impulse control improves as you get into your late 20s. Impulse control turns out to be very important for success in, in business. Long-term planning, 
um, not being too impulsive. Yes, taking colossal risks and looking at a new market, something like, say, the market that's now been uh, opened up by ChatGPT and these, mm -hmm. these other generative AI models. That's fascinating mm -hmm. stuff that's dominated by young people. So we're all going to pay a lot of attention to that. But the vast majority of these businesses that come from 40-something-year-olds, that's 20 years of, of failure, of, of pushing against failure, of, of learning how to fail better next time mm -hmm. so that you get closer and closer to the mark. It's not that they only they started their first business at 42. It's that they were successful at 42. Mm -hmm. And so you have 20 years over these young entrepreneurs to fail and come back again. And I think that's that's a huge part of this is developing certain skills that take time to, to marinate. And, uh, and as you get closer to the mark, figuring out what it is that requires you to, to move in that correct direction as opposed to the wrong direction, all of mm -hmm. which takes time. Yeah, I really like that too, because I think it paired with that concept, I can't remember if it was in the same chapter, but you referenced it, was just the fact that um, the first idea is not always the best idea. And I know I've made that mistake right. a lot before. Like I'll, I'll sit down and whiteboard a fresh idea on the, on the whiteboard and I'll look at it and I'll go, Usually I'll say, oh, that's really great. And then I'll show it to a couple people and they say, no, that's not that great. And then I just, and then I leave it, right? I don't keep turning on it because I think, oh, the first one wasn't very good. So it must not be a thing. But I appreciated the fact that you sort of enlightened this idea that um, you, you actually can fail and then try again and fail. And actually it does get better with time. That was very encouraging because I know I've definitely gotten discouraged very quickly when something doesn't seem original or novel from like the first time on the whiteboard, right? It's easy to Lose, lose focus. So and, and you don't see that, right? I mean, most of the time, right. what you see is you see Google, the 22nd search engine and say, wow, mm -hmm. that was a success. And that was something new and different. Or you see, you see the, you know, Jeff Bezos had some ideas that perhaps weren't as successful or Bill Gates had some ideas or Walt Disney had ideas, you know, all of these entrepreneurs who were ultimately very, very successful. What you don't see is all those ideas that were ultimately erased from the whiteboard because mm -hmm. they didn't quite work out. And so by nature, we always see what succeeds and where what's hidden from us is what doesn't. And so we always feel like our own personal failures, uh, they're so visible to us and so much mm -hmm. more visible than anybody else's failures that um, that's, I think, an important myth to dispel. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about habits? Yeah, let's yeah. go there. So not to jump to the end of the book, but I, I want to spend some time <laughs> with the habits piece. So I like this section. We've actually done some work, some previous books on habits, uh, Power to Change by Craig Rochelle. We've, we've read uh, The Habits Academy. What's that called? No, Atomic Habits. We read Atomic that book. Habits. We didn't review that book. Um, we, uh, we've had some other, it's come up in a few books. So it was funny. I thought you were actually going to go in a different direction with that section, but it was totally fine. It was good. Um, I was thinking more about the automation idea that you brought up, I think, in chapter eight or nine about um, habits in that format sort of carve out or don't don't take any creative energy right was, was the idea yes. of those habits but then you actually talked about the difference between that and also what i read was i'm just trying to check my notes here the habits i think of creativity and getting unstuck um is what you described as i think the experimentation exploring and exploiting and sort of taking action right was that so mm -hmm. is that how you were do i have that can you talk more about just what you meant by those habits and, and how you form presumably like those are three kind of big habits you were sort of encouraging folks to adopt in some way. Is that right? Yeah. So the, the book is sort of divided into these three, well, it's four H's, but the four. three H's that I really focus on are heart, head, and habit. Heart is how you deal with the emotional consequences of being stuck. 
and that's really the first thing you have to do because until you you can can calm yourself in the face of being stuck, you, you're not going to be very successful at getting unstuck. Yeah. So there's there's heart, then there's head, which is the cognitive strategies, the mental strategies for for moving forward. And then the last section, as you mentioned, is habit. Habit is the actions. And and really, if you think about dealing with emotions, the thoughts, and then the actions, the actions are essentially what this is all about. You know, that the emotions and the the thoughts are all in the service of action that gets you to where you want to be. And without the action, there's there's nothing. So yeah. I think action is paramount. It's the most important thing. And so you, you were mentioning this, this idea of habits or cultivating certain practices that get you through and get you unstuck. Um, there, are, there are a number of ideas there. I, we talked a little bit about Dave Burkhoff and his approach to experimentalism and ex experimenting and mm -hmm. trying different things until you figure out what works best. Um, the, the thing that I think is really interesting about, um, about action is that, well, there are two things. One thing is that when you are acting, by definition, you are not stuck, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. if you're a writer and you're, you're just feeling like you, you have writer's block, one thing to do is to lower the bar from here where I, this is what I consider good writing all the way to the floor mm. and just spend five minutes pouring out all the nonsense that's in your head. Just type whatever comes to your mind. Mm -hmm. Now, by definition, you are not stuck in that moment. You're writing. Mm -hmm. And that kind of greases the wheels. It gets things moving. And there's a lot of evidence for that, that as long as you lower your threshold with the ultimate aim of raising it again later on, that's very freeing. And there's some really interesting examples of this from very, very successful people in, in the creative world. There's um, Jeff Tweedy from Wilco, the singer from a band called Wilco. And he talks mm -hmm. about this idea that all the stuff that's on the surface, if you're a songwriter or a, or a writer or you try and create any sort of new content, all of the stuff on the surface is kind of nonsense. It's not good stuff. You've got to get rid of it, get below that to get the really good ideas. So he talks about this, this act. He calls it pouring out the bad stuff in the morning. So he gets started writing and he dumps out all the bad stuff for 10 minutes and then the good stuff starts to pop up. It's similar to the idea that your first ideas are not going to be your best ideas. Yeah. And it, it's that idea that if it were, if it comes to you first, it's coming to other people first, it's probably deeply unoriginal. And if it hasn't been done yet, there's a reason for it. So spend a bit of time. And so that idea of pouring out, I find very liberating, especially when I'm stuck as a writer, mm -hmm. I will sit there and just type nonsense for a little bit and then things start to start to loosen up a little bit. And then I feel that I get somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's a, that's a really important part of acting is that act in really small bits, maybe mm -hmm. a minute at a time at first, if you need to lower the bar mm -hmm. and then things start to, to, to work again. Yeah. I, I really like that. Cause I think the connection I make to several both books and people I've heard about in, in consulting work is um, the, the, the active of, taking that action, even when it's not very good action actually mm -hmm. leads to a quicker resolution. Or, or like what I like to say is it's almost like you come in with this assumption of assume you're going to be stuck and therefore put all the habits in place so that when you get stuck, you're not surprised. You'd actually be doing all the things. I think about Jerry Seinfeld, right? And he's talked about, he wrote a joke a day for right. you know, decades, right? I bet you a lot of those jokes aren't very good. Like they're probably pretty bad, <laughs> right? Exactly. But he, he has this habit, right? And he's done it and he's, and he gets out of that writer's block, even when it's not a good one. And I think that's a, just one I thought of reading the book. So I really like it. Um, so Josh jumped to the end and he's like, Hey, what's the habit? What's, I mean, as a, as a true consultant and I, as an executive coach, I'm like, you started with the heart. And a lot of times in my coaching of executives, 
they want to jump right to the habit. And I frequently have, so I'm trying to bait you to go in this direction. Now people want to jump to the habit because that's where the money is, but a lot, you can't until you hit the heart first. So I'm happy that you did that. So tell me more about the heart aspect because Josh really wants to get to the habit. And as a coach, I'm like, dude, you can't do that until you hit the heart first. You went the right order. I just jumped. Yeah. So you talk about the heart. Yes. Where do you start with the heart and why? Yeah. So it, it, this really begins with the idea that um, I, I'm very, I'm a scientist and I study uh, human psychology and I'm very interested in the way people think and the way they respond to outside stimuli. And there's this fascinating thing you'll read in the news every few years of say, persons walking down a, the street, they see that someone's trapped under a car and they they get what is known as historic, hysterical strength. They pick the car up and they save this person. There are moments when we are stuck or when someone else is stuck where we respond in this very strong physical way. That's adaptive. That's There's an evolutionary reason for that. There's this rush of adrenaline that, that leads to hysterical strength. It turns out that as adaptive as that is when you're physically stuck, it is maladaptive when you are psychologically stuck in these states that we've been talking about. Because that hysterical strength, what it does is it just completely dismantles your ability to control your emotions. And struggling and thrashing about might be very good when you're trapped under a car, but it's not very good when you're trying to figure out a a sort of niche strategy or something that requires a little bit of thought. So the first thing you have to do is to to grapple with that, that emotional shock of feeling stuck. And it's one of the things I found. I ran this series of surveys with, in fact, thousands of people now all around the world asking them, are you stuck in some respect? Everyone says yes. There's always something in their lives that makes them feel like they're stuck. And then the next question is, how does that feel? And all of them say, I feel alone. This doesn't feel good. It feels like it's just me against the world. I don't even think anyone else is stuck, although, of course, everyone's stuck in some other respect. So that that feeling of loneliness is, is misplaced. But it's clear that for people who are stuck, it's a very emotional experience. And so you really have to get your, your emotions right. You have to pause, take a break, accept that you're where you are. There's a whole psychological component to dealing with being stuck. And until you do that, you can't really grapple with strategy and whiteboarding and brainstorming and um, the behavioral side of things, the habits, mm-hmm. the actions. I don't, I'm not saying it's you, you need to set aside three months to get to deal with the emotions, but at the very least, you have to recognize that your emotional responses are part of what is further entrenching you. And once you deal with that and grapple with it, you you tend to do a lot better in, in actually forming the strategies to get unstuck. So how do you recommend? So even if you say, hey, I am unstuck now, and there's definitely some feelings around being unstuck, how do you get to that point? How do you get to how do you how do you get, how do you get to getting unstuck? Yeah. Yeah. So it, the, the emotional part of it, I think one of the things we do is we are very quick to act. As we've just said, you know, mm-hmm. the first thing we want to do is act. And there are some stories in the book of people who have learned to strategically pause to do the opposite of acting. Mm-hmm. So although acting is critical, you can't act until you've paused and figured out what the lay of the land is. Uh, one of the people I talk about here is uh, Lionel Messi, widely regarded as the greatest soccer player alive today and maybe of all time. I think he's the greatest of all time. And the interesting thing about Messi is, first of all, he is a, he's known to be a very nervous starter of matches. So when a, when a soccer match begins, he's nervous, more nervous than you would perhaps imagine for someone of his ability and his stature. And um, for years, he was physically sick before games. And his coaches used to say, how can he be a leader if he can't grapple with his emotions? 
And so what he started to do is he started to develop a strategy of just not effectively not playing the game for the first few minutes. So he gave himself, he knew he was effective as a player, but he gave himself the first few minutes to calm down. And so what you do is you can you can look at every player now in this age of statistics in sports, you can look at every player, you can look at which minutes they score goals in, you can look at how much they move during the course of a soccer game or really any other sport. And the thing you see with Messi is he basically does not move except for a couple of little steps here and there for the first five minutes of the game. He's looking at all the players. He's working out where the weaknesses are, where the strengths are. He's sacrificing the first five minutes of the game so that for the other 85 plus, he will strategically be in a better position and also emotionally in a better position. So if you look at the games where he scores goals over the years, he has scored in every single minute of the match except the first two because he's really not even really playing yet. And that's very unusual. You don't see that in many players. And so he's just one example of, of these people who say, look, I'm going to sacrifice the right now for the benefit that comes later when I've I've got the lay of the land. And so and it goes against the, the grain for humans, right? We want to do things right now. And so it's very important to cultivate that practice of slowing down, of taking a pause. I think that's one of the, the best first things you can do in the face of being stuck to get unstuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that example. I'm not sure when you did all the writing for the book, but I, I actually thought it was a great example because I, you know, watching the World Cup, obviously he just won the World Cup and yes. they talked about that strategy in the World Cup. If you were watching any of the Argentinian games, which I work with a firm, we have talent and teams in Argentina. So we were obviously cheering for them and, and connecting with our, our colleagues there and um, so anyway, I don't know if you were it for the world cup or not, but it was good timing and, and, uh, definitely something that they talked about a lot. So it was, uh, that was great. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I didn't, I, I'd, I'd written it before the world cup. I was very happy to see him win. Obviously gave the, gave the anecdote a little bit of extra force. Yeah. I was hoping Argentina wouldn't be edged out in the final and it all worked out well. So the, That's right. the no, anecdote I, I, stands. Yeah. Yeah. I wondered with, uh, just the way the writing was, if you probably had written it before. And so that's why I, I thought I'd bring mm-hmm. it up because I thought that was good. Um, Speaking of some of that, in terms of the, the, the that process of the strategic pause, I think one of the things I really liked about the book was the theme of persistence, right? Again, this idea of, you know, just because it's not great on the whiteboard the first time, maybe you're in the middle of being stuck. Um, and just the importance of sticking with things through difficulty, right? I think that's really mm-hmm. important. Um, I think uh, like the quote that I wrote down, I think you said, I'm, I'm not reading it. You wrote it. So, you know, what it says <laughs> for people listening to the podcast, you said it's hard to train people to believe that mental difficulty is a sign of progress rather than stagnation. Um, how, how does someone sort of, how do you build someone's capability to sort of come overcome that stagnation? Like that, that ability to sort of know the difference between yes, I'm stuck, but I should keep going or no, I'm stuck. And this is the kind of thing I should pivot, right? Like when, how do you build someone's sort of resilience or persistence through that from a training perspective or a culture perspective? Yeah, I think a lot of it's education. So the first thing to know is that we almost always stop too soon. That's mm. much more common than going too long and spending too long on something, on over committing to a bad idea. So that's the default is to begin by saying, well, maybe I should spend a bit more time on this. Um, that's at least what I have found in, in research and, and in my experience and one of the reasons for that, there's an idea I talk about in the book known as the creativity or creative cliff. And um, this idea is based on some research by uh, a, a couple of psychologists who, who found that when you ask people when their best ideas are likely to emerge, they say early. 
You know, if I if I'm sitting down for a brainstorming session, in the first few minutes, my best ideas will tumble out. They're the ones that come to me quickest. There's a reason for that. They're probably the best ones. Struggling is a sign that things are just kind of getting a bit clunky. They're probably not my best ideas. And so the researchers tested this and they gave people, say, multiple sessions and looked at the, the quality of their ideas across those sessions. And they found that that wasn't true that either your ideas are consistently about the same, but in a lot of their studies, they found that they got better over time. Mm -hmm. And it comes back to this idea that you're pouring out the obvious and maybe the not so good early on. Mm -hmm. And you're mistaking the ease with which those first ideas tumble out for goodness, because that's what we, we're constantly doing that. Like if I ask you, how well do you speak a language? You say, well, it's easy for me. It's very easy for the words to just sort of tumble out. Well, then you probably speak that language very fluently. But that doesn't apply to everything. Fluency is not a good guide to quality in every domain. And in fact, when we're talking about creativity or newness or doing a, a pivot from where I am now or tweaking something or getting unstuck, where by definition, whatever I've been doing in the past isn't going to continue to work, mm -hmm. being okay with the struggle is critical because the struggle is a sign that you're you're probably doing things a bit differently. You're grappling with change. You're, you're working out something new. And so that's an essential component of what you're doing. Mm. This is known in psychology as metacognition. So we have our mm. thoughts, but the metacognition is what sits above our thoughts. And that's how easy, did, easily did those thoughts come to me? Was it hard for me to get them? Were they inaccessible? Did they take a lot of effort? And metacognition is a guide to, for example, how well you speak a language if something's easy, but it can lead you astray a little bit if you're, if you're striving for for getting unstuck or creativity. So you have the opportunity to, let's just say, teach thousands and thousands of students in business school. And in the book, you talk about coaxing greatness from others. So especially with students, they're, they're your business leaders that want to go to the next step. What are your, uh, what's your advice for coaxing greatness out of others, whether it be a new business leader who then needs to lead their team or as you're leading these, you know, future business executives or entrepreneurs what you know what, what are your recommendations yeah it's a huge a huge question right and and that's why i i ask them i i show them that that example that cell phone example and the reason i like that one and i return to it so often is because i think it it explodes some of the myths that are quite problematic among mba students in particular and and in, in students of business anywhere what we do is we try to cater to ourselves we think of the market as just lots of people just like me. It's one of the reasons why you, I talk about this in the book. You need to cultivate a bit of diversity around you. If you're young, find some older people. If you're living in a city, find some people who live in the in rural, rural areas where they're experiencing very different things because you are by nature egocentric and you're going to be making decisions for yourself. And so one of the things that you find is that you know, you've got these incubators in the form of business schools where all these students come out in their mid-20s, late-20s, creating businesses for other people who are in their mid-20s and late-20s. But it turns out that that's a Time of our lives where we don't have that much disposable income. That's early on in our careers. A lot of us are dealing with student debt and things like that. Um, it's really your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s when you have more disposable income. So the first thing to do is to say, is there a world out there of people who are not like me, who are just hungry for products in a particular industry where they've been historically overlooked? It's one of the one of the big things we do together is in, in my classes is think about that, that question. What's different from me and can I cater to that audience? And I, I like that as a sort of narrow instructional example when you're thinking of strategy to think beyond who you are. But I think it's also an incredibly valuable skill in in leadership and in coaching in general is to to recognize that almost no one is exactly like you. In fact, there's probably no one who's exactly like you. 
And so surrounding yourself with others who are different is, is really valuable. There's some really interesting experiments that I talk about in the book that I came across that, that talk about the fact that it's, it's actually, instead of having, imagine that you're very competent. Let's say you think of yourself as a sort of, I'm at the 90th percentile on some dimension that really matters to me. Should I have five other people who are also at the 90th percentile on that dimension? Or should I get five other mediocre people on various other dimensions who have other focuses that are central to them? And there's all this incredible evidence that it's not surrounding yourself with the best, it's surrounding yourself with the most different that leads to the best outcomes. In fact, agents of chaos, people who come in and just kind of throw everything around and say, what you've been doing is wrong. Here are some new ways to do that. Uh, Pixar talks about this. They call them the black sheep. They always bring in some black sheep into their projects. Like we've been doing it this one way. We all think alike. We like the way we do it. And the agent comes in and says, I'm the black sheep. And I think everything you're doing is wrong. And here are, here are 15 things you should think about that are different. That is incredibly valuable. That disorganization, that throwing things upside down. And all of that comes from, from diversity, broadness, breadth in general. Um, and I think as an academic, I'm very sensitive to this idea. You write a PhD, you drill down into an idea, you get narrower and narrower and narrower over time. And you start to forget that there's all this other stuff out there in the world if you're not careful. And I think mm -hmm. that's a problem in business as well. So just avoid myopia in yeah. leadership in business general, in general. Now to tack onto that, in my experience, some people, some, a lot have problems when they do encounter those black sheep. Yeah. So then I, I understand what you're saying, but what do you do in that instance when, Hey, someone's saying my idea is not the greatest yeah, idea in the world. What then? Well, that's universal, right? That's, that's what black sheep are designed to do. By definition, they spoil the flock. They, mm -hmm. they change things up. They, they turn things upside down. So, you know, there are always going to be people who struggle with that. I think it's very important, particularly as leaders, to recognize that there will be people in a group that you're managing who will be, there, there may be some black sheep, but it's also really important to cultivate them and to recognize their value, their worth. Because I think as leaders, when you're looking for harmony in a group, you're looking for a culture that feels like it's cohesive, the people who like being around each other. That's obviously one of the signs that you're a good leader, right? You've, you've formed this group that feels close-knit. In all sorts of different contexts, there's a lot of value in that. But I think in, in business and in a lot of other contexts as well, having maybe one or two people in the group who think differently is, is unbelievably valuable. And you need to recognize that and not push against it too hard. You're not trying to turn all the black sheep. You're not trying to throw white paint at them and make them look like all the other sheep. You're recognizing that they're there and they have value. And obviously it's hard, right? If you If you're the kind of person who's very sensitive about your ideas, to have someone tell you that your idea is not the best idea, and that sort of fragility in general is not is not great. It's not great in a team um, because you need to be open to the idea that your ideas aren't the the best ideas out there. And I think as as leaders and as managers, it's very important to point that out. I, I often think about mm -hmm. my kids. I have two kids, and they both think they have the best ideas, and they're not always the same best ideas. And you've got to make sure that they recognize that it's there are like 15 different ways to be the best. And that's true. I mean, you can have these yeah. different approaches and you can still be valuable and worthwhile without, um, without every one of your ideas being drowning out all the other options. And right. I think that's going to be true in, in management of teams and in leadership in general as well. Well, and a follow-up to that, I think that ties to one of the questions I had uh, related to the great example you gave about the Doctor Who series. And I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not a fan, but I kind of know of it. And it was great to get actually an overview of what that's more about. I didn't know it had been such a long-running show for so long, and it's yeah. it great. I think one of the things I was struck by, kind of tying to this concept, I think you're getting at, and maybe it was more in there, and I just didn't 
pick up the nuance, but I, I noticed there seemed to be a tension. Of, you talked about, for example, in the Doctor Who series, they would regularly change over the creatives and the talent who are contributing to the series. And I was, I was struck by, you know, they changed them over, and I won't get this exactly right, but I think it looked like they changed kind of key leadership or creatives every season or two or three, you know? I mean, folks would, you know, be running with the show for so many episodes, but it wasn't ever a, a long number of episodes. And I guess what I was struck thinking about was the tension of, well, why not change the creatives every single episode? Like there's, there's certainly some continuity that comes from the same team being together for some period of time. So you would do it. It's so like, what's that tension and how do you build a team around sort of how do you keep the right folks together? So you do have that cohesiveness, right? And then when's the right time to have those shifts, whether it's a new person thinking differently about ideas or a different set of creatives, because at some point you, you lose the value of that cohesiveness, right? That's what I was like, I was picking up on attention. I'm not sure if that's what you meant, but I was struggling to figure out like, how, what's that formula for putting a team together, right? In the right way for how long? And at what point do you realize it's stale? Swap them out, you know, whether it's six months, two years, five years, anyhow, I'd love to hear more. Yeah, it's, it's a, that they're obviously the opposite ends of the spectrum there is yeah. changing things up every day. Like imagine every day you rolled out of bed and you had to reconstruct your life from scratch and figure out what I'm going to do today. And is a, I, today I'm a firefighter and tomorrow I'm going to be a police officer. And the next, you know, that's one way to live your life is to jump around almost schizophrenically from one thing to the next. The other way is to do exactly the same thing every day, wear the same clothes, eat the same meal. And there are people in this world who do that. There are articles I've read recently about people who eat the same peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day for lunch That's and have done me. for 60 years. <laughs> right. And it's, you know what, honestly, if you like that sandwich and it keeps you healthy, use your energy elsewhere. That's fine. That's Automate my, that. That's my approach. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm not too far from that. But um, I think the key is to work out what the value might be of both of those ends of the spectrum in whatever it is that you're doing. And I think there are endeavors where consistency is really valuable. Cohesive teams where you know that someone's your right hand, the other person's your left hand. And so you sort of function as one big organism. There's great value to that in some instances, in some areas. Creating a TV show like Doctor Who over a 60 year period, that's not a good recipe for success. You can't have just the same every day for 60 years and expect your show to be successful as the whole world changes 50 different ways. Mm -hmm. So you need newness and creativity and novelty there. But I do think that automation is really, really important. Having consistency in the same thing in some domains is really, really valuable. Um, investing is a great example where if you try and reinvent the wheel every time the, the market changes in some way, it's, it's, it's exhausting and you're by making changes, you're likely to fail. You're likely to make bad decisions. One of the best indications of success in the long run in investing is not making decisions. Mm -hmm. um, Warren Buffett talks about this, the 20 hole card punch. His, his idea is that when you're born, you get to a little card that mm -hmm. says, this is your investment card. You get to punch it 20 times throughout the course of your life. So you can only make 20 investment decisions or trades throughout the whole course of your life. And his idea is, the value of that is it stops you from making tons of bad decisions. Mm -hmm. When you make a decision, you're careful about it because you've only got 19 more than 18 and 17, but it really raises the bar for when a decision should be made. Often emission is better than action. Mm -hmm. And so that's, again, in favor of automation. I think yeah. you just have to know when, when to shake things up. And we have limited resources. So you know, th there's a lot of research on, on how we think and the, the, the way we, we describe this in, in cognitive science is there's system one processing and system two processing. Mm -hmm. System one is automatic. It's based on existing rules. If every time you went to the store to buy a, a soda, 
And you had to start from scratch and say, well, now let me spend the next half an hour looking at every soda, all the ingredients, figuring out the right decision. You'd be paralyzed. You'd never get anywhere. And so you, what you do is you say, I know Coca-Cola. I'm going to take that one and have that one because I know it's good. Save my resources for something else. Mm -hmm. So most of our decisions are like that. System two decisions take up a huge amount of energy and time and, and thought. And those are the ones where you're really starting from scratch, mm -hmm. from the bottom up. They're like, what career should I pursue? Which car should I buy? Which home should I buy? Which town should I live in? How many kids should I have? These are questions you spend a huge amount of time thinking about mm -hmm. as you should. And they're, they're hungry for information when we're going through those, those processes. But you, you need the automation, the consistency, the team that's been together for a long time for most of what you do. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. I, that was, um, that was a really, I just love that concepts and sort of thinking about them. So thank you. So I have four kids. Josh has three kids. You mentioned you have two kids and I'm now 19 next month will be 19 years in my current business that I've seen grown. I, and this is more of just nothing more than my own personal example. I've noticed that as my kids have gotten older, they've taught me a lot about business for a number of different reasons for better or worse. So since you mentioned you have children of your own, what have they taught you about some research that you already had and like shed some more light on that? This, this really works or, Hey, no, I need to go back and do some more research. Yeah. So it's really interesting. My, my kids, I, when I was writing the previous book, the day I handed in that manuscript, which was in 2016, uh, I know exactly the date. It was the day my son was born because in that morning I handed the manuscript in and then my son was born later that evening. I, I remember for the third book, what, what a different experience it was writing the third book, because by then I had two kids. And so things were, were very, very different. I'd learned quite a lot. One of the things I learned was that second book was about screens and how we grapple with screens and how we learn how to live our lives in the non-digital world, given how much of a suck the digital world exerts on us. It pulls us in. And one of the things I remember with my son was I'd written about how you know kids, not having kids yet, I wrote about how kids struggle to deal with screens and the screens are so exciting to them and interesting to them. And I remember the, the very first time my son ever smiled was when I had my phone on my lap and he leaned across and he sort of swiped it accidentally and the screen picture changed and he, his eyes went big and he smiled at the screen. And I was like, well, that's the first time I got him to smile was when he actually accidentally swiped my screen, it, trying to exert control on the world. And, and one thing I realized, one, one thing was I, I sort of imagined that his first smile would be in response to something a little bit more romantic than swiping a screen by mistake, but it wasn't. But what, what I learned from that was how important, even from a very young age, control is mm. and how much humans crave it. And so his first experience controlling the world in a way that felt like he had exerted himself on the world and it had responded was, was intoxicating to him. So a lot of my research has been about trying to find that control in a world that I think is, is, is increasingly difficult to control. Things are, things are more and more... I don't know. It feels like things are moving faster. It's harder for us to, to get on top of the way the world works. And so this book is an attempt to do essentially what my son did with the phone that day, which is to uh, to bring back control for processes that feel like they're they're overwhelming to a lot of people. I think speaking to kids, I think the other kind of parenting question I picked up on was just this kids ask a lot of questions. And I like the mm. fact that you pointed out the fact that kids sort of ask tons of questions. And, and one of my children in particular is... Um, Boy, he will wear you out with the questions you give him a chance. Um, and I know it's good to encourage him. I think the thing I was, <laughs> how do I help, you know, teach, how do we teach adults 
to be more curious, right? Because clearly many of us had it at one point in our life. Yeah. And, you know, how do we, how, how, how do you help your MBA students and even going out into companies? Like, how do, you, how do we build this culture of curiosity to actually be more like children, right? In this way, to ask more questions. Yeah, that's that's the chapter I write about experimentalism as a mm-hmm. sort of philosophy, a way to approach the world. And and um, you know, we'd mentioned a, a little bit earlier this idea of um, of Dick Fosbury changing the way we do the high jump, and mm-hmm. Dave Burkoff changing the way people did backstroke in the late eighties. And um, the the way that happens is you have to question things that are seen as orthodoxy, as as they are the way that you do this particular thing, and they always have been, and they are entrenched. And so. In whatever you do, whether you're in a particular business, whether you're an athlete, I'm also a runner. So when I run, I'm constantly asking myself, I take this many breaths. I, I have this many strides a minute. I look at my Strava data and I look at my heart rate data and I'm constantly asking like a bit of a madman, um, could things be different? Is there a, a tweak for me that would be like Burkhoff's tweak for the backstroke or Fosbury's tweak for the the high jump? And I think that's that's a it's a habit that you can ingrain and, and teach yourself to ask questions about everything. And I mean, you could do this right now. Think about whatever your business is, whatever you happen to do, whether you're in business or not. Um, anything that's important to you, ask five questions about things that you take for granted as being true. These are you know unassailable truths and ask yourself why they have to be true and whether there might be alternatives. And one of the exercises I do with people sometimes is come up with three alternatives for the, the five things that feel like they are the most have to be this way. Like in your world, in your world, whatever your world may be, these are the five things that have to be this way. Well, now what are three alternatives to that? And what happens if you shake things up in that direction? And it's really instructive because it shows you that even the things that you see as foundational, as essential and as immutable, as impossible, uh, incapable of being changed, they can be changed. And sometimes when you, when you think about it, even for one minute, you realize, oh, there's a sort of over the hill there. There's there's some a pasture that looks really interesting. I've never even considered going there. Maybe I should try it for a month. And that's what experimentalism is all about. It's like saying, well, let's make the next year, let's make the rest of this year or the, the next 12 months, 12 separate periods to experiment with 12 different things. I'm going to mm-hmm. tweak things for the next 12 months and that'll bring back dividends for the next 20, 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the sort of thing that I think you can learn from kids because they have they're obviously early on in their lives. Everything's sort of, they, they get wide-eyed about everything. But we should be doing the same thing as adults. There's no reason for us not to be just as curious about whether things could be better than they are. Yeah, I think the other question on that front, can I jump in a little more? Please do. Um, was thinking about that, what I read, read, kind of building on the experimentation was, excuse me, experimentalism and exploitation, right? The other half of that. And yeah. I've noticed in some scenarios, I liked what you talked about, the cycling between those two. Um, and I was thinking about, I have some scenarios in business where literally the cycle between experimentation and exploitation will be day to day, week to week, because like, hey, we're building a technology product. So we go do discovery with the, with the client that they, they give us some insights or the, or the customer gives us some insights. We go do a design and show it back to them. They say, yes, that's it. We go build it. Right. And that takes a course of, you know, a couple of weeks versus some kinds of ex- experimentalism and exploitation. Like it takes years, right? You spend years in the experimentalism phase. So how do you think about sort of the, the time-based kind of overlay on the, that back and forth? And, and, and what, when do you think about, you know, okay, I can rotate between these two or, or toggle between these two fr- frequently enough, t- too frequently, 
if you could tell me more, that was another space I was curious about. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about experimentalism, which is one half of the equation for success. There's a lot of research showing that you can experiment, but if you experiment forever, you'll never actually commit to anything. And that's not a recipe for success. And the other half, as you mentioned, is, is uh, exploitation, which sounds like a, a bad term. It doesn't sound very nice, but the idea is you're experimenting until you find something that works and then you you go deep into that thing, whatever it is. Having experimented, you know that this is the best of all options in theory, and then you make a lot of value. You get a lot of value from it. And there are a lot of examples of, of um, film directors and writers or artists or book writers, people who tried five or six different approaches before they realized this is this is gold for me and then they went mm. deep mm-hmm. and they figured out you know jackson pollock with his his uh, spatter paint spatter approach that wasn't where he began his artistic career he tried a whole lot of other stuff before realizing hey this is gold and so mm-hmm. then he he did really well with that approach and i think you're right that it's going to be domain specific where you switch from experimentation to exploitation and i think what you need from experimentation before you move on to the exploitation phase is you need feedback mm-hmm. and you need to have learned something. And in some domains that move really fast, feedback comes quickly. Yeah. Um, it, it, in the tech world, maybe, if that's, if that's a domain that you're in, you might get rapid feedback. If you get user data that comes in, you know, big tranches of user data coming in every day, mm-hmm. you're learning things constantly. But if you're creating a product and you're prototyping and you're trying five or six different iterations, you're exploring your options and that takes time. It takes time to manufacture it, to get it out into market, to test market it and so on. And so your experimentation phase might last a year or two years or three years. You just have to figure out for your domain that you're in, how long it takes you to get that feedback that allows you to then say, I've experimented with versions one to 10. Mm -hmm. I know that version seven is gold. This is where I'm diving in. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there are a lot of examples of this, not just in business, not just in creativity. It's funny that the area where I got really interested in this was, was truffles, finding truffles oh, yeah. in Italy. And there's this whole process they use where they get these, these, this one breed of dog in the whole world that can sniff out truffles, but here's the magic. It doesn't eat them when it finds them. Cause they used to use truffle finding pigs to find these truffles, these sort of fungi that grow under the ground, mm-hmm. but the, the pigs would freak out when they found them and they'd eat them all. So you spend all this time looking for them. So they found this dog that roves the roams around the the uh, hillsides in Italy where they, they tend to grow. And sometimes they find a patch really fast. Sometimes the exploration phase goes on for much longer. But once you find that patch, you've got to spend a lot of time there to make sure you find all the little species of truffle that are there because it's incredibly valuable. Um, and so their, their, their cycle of explore, exploration and exploitation shifts depending on how the exploration phase goes in the first place. Sure. And I think that's true for any domain. Yeah. No, I like that. And that feedback piece is, is great. Um, so thank you. Yeah, that was very sure. helpful. Well, good. Well, hey, Adam, congratulations on your book. Thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule. Um, I have like 30 more questions to ask you. <laughs> but, hours you, I'm sure. So, so what's what's one thing, just, just leave us with one last parting comment that uh, you'd like, you know, you've written this book, you've done all the research. What's the one thing that you want our listeners and those watching us on YouTube to take from um, your book that you just, that's coming out on uh, May 16th this year? Yeah. So a lot of my consulting has been focused on a process known as the friction audit. It's where you essentially audit your business or your life. You find friction points and you sand them down. And it's it's been really useful. And I think the, the big philosophy behind it that I find has been useful for me personally, and that seems to be useful for others, is that we we tend to add a lot when we're trying to improve things. 
Like you have a business and you say, I'm going to make it even sweeter. My product's going to be even better. I'm going to, the service is going to, I'm going to add three extra features and we, we complicate things. But I think the first thing to do, if you want to return on investment and not to spend too much in the process is to strip away, simplify, remove, remove the elements that are inessential. And that's, that's key to a friction audit is to go through and to sand down the bits that are maybe a little bit jagged. And so in general, as a default, the thing that I've, I've learned the most through this process of, of researching for this book is that for almost everyone in almost every context, the best first move is to strip away the stuff that's inessential rather than trying to bolt on new flashy extras. And, and that's, that's been very valuable for me. Well, super. Well, we won't keep you any more time, but I will say we'll have a link to your book at the bottom of the podcast. And uh, if they want to find out more about, you know, what a friction audit is, where uh, where do they go? Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn, and uh, you can also find it my web page where I have a lot of this information. I'm going to have some downloadables, one pages on things like the friction audit. There, if you just search for Adam Alter, and uh, anatomy of a breakthrough you'll find all of that pretty easily um but uh thank you both thanks josh and eric for having me i really appreciate it hey thank you so much adam thank you so much adam appreciate it and uh blessings good luck with everything you too thank you